Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. President Biden just took a major step towards making marijuana legal, at least on the federal level. The lead starts right now. A campaign promise almost fulfilled announcing today, the president, that certain marijuana convictions are going to be pardoned. How quickly could we see Biden's next steps on this issue? And world on edge, North Korea last night launching two more ballistic missiles, that's six in less than two weeks. How far will U.S. and allies go to try to calm rising tensions in the region? Plus, a heartbreaking find last night that California family kidnapped at gunpoint that was missing. They were found dead, the youngest victim, only eight months old. What detectives are now saying about the person they believe is responsible. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. President Biden taking his first steps, possibly, towards the decriminalization of marijuana on the federal level. He is pardoning all prior federal offenses of, quote, simple marijuana possession. This will clear convictions for several thousand Americans. President Biden is now also encouraging governors to follow his lead and pardon those convicted on similar state charges. The Biden administration also says that it will begin to review the federal classification of marijuana. Right now, marijuana is still a class one drug alongside heroin and LSD, which means that according to the federal government, marijuana, cannabis has no accepted medical use at the federal level. Despite study after study, suggesting positive health benefits from medical marijuana, which is legal in more than 37 states and the District of Columbia. Let's get right to CNN's Caitlin Collins, our chief White House correspondent who's at the White House. Caitlin, today's move is a step towards fulfilling a Biden campaign promise. Yeah, Jake, a campaign promise that he made in 2020. It's a major shift for the federal government to take this position. And it's also potentially life-changing for thousands of people. President Biden saying that he will pardon people who have been convicted of marijuana possession on the federal level. That is going to affect about 6,500 people at least, Jake, potentially thousands more when you take into consideration the District of Columbia. That's based on estimates from senior officials who were briefing reporters on this decision that President Biden made. And he had faced some questions, Jake, over the last about two years or so since he took office about when he was going to take action on this particular step. And officials told reporters today it was a decision that had been on his mind for some time, one he is now moving toward doing. You're right, it is not the full decriminalization that some people have called for, but it is a significant step and a very big shift for the federal government to take this step, Jake. And he is also, in addition to that, encouraging governors to consider taking the same step for people who were convicted on state offenses, on state charges, to also take a step in looking at the people who have been convicted of simple marijuana possession. And Jake, it might be that last part that is also incredibly significant that you talked about there when it comes to the Schedule One drugs and asking the HHS 
DHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the Attorney General to look into how that is considered. Because obviously, fentanyl is not even considered a Schedule One drug, and you've seen the deaths that that has caused, especially in teenagers in the United States. So that's a major step there. We'll see how that review goes. And when the president talked about why he was doing this, Jake, he said in a statement that sending people to prison for possessing marijuana has upended too many lives and incarcerated people for conduct that many states no longer prohibit. Criminal records for marijuana possession have also imposed needless barriers to employment, housing, educational opportunities. And Jake, he notes that while white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people have been arrested, prosecuted and convicted at disproportionate rates. And Jake, he is working to change that with this decision today. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Now to our world lead. North Korea today mobilizing 12 warplanes to fly near South Korea. This comes after North Korea fired two more missiles, marking North Korea's sixth launch in just 12 days. CNN's Oren Lieberman has been tracking the latest escalations from North Korea and how the U.S. and its allies are responding around the world. On the North Korean peninsula, messages over the 38th parallel have been conveyed in a show of military force. North Korea tests launching two more ballistic missiles Thursday and the U.S. responding with a joint exercise. Sending two warships from the USS Reagan Carrier Strike Group to the region for ballistic missile defense drills with South Korea and Japan after the latest launches. South Korea says the exercises focused on the detection, tracking and interception of future North Korean missiles. According to a CNN count, North Korea has launched ballistic missiles six times in the last two weeks. Most were short-range ballistic missiles, but one launch earlier this week was an intermediate-range missile that flew over Japan, the first time that's happened in five years. And this morning, Kim Jong-un flying fighters and bombers for an exercise near the South Korean border, according to the South Koreans, causing them to scramble their own fighters in response. Clearly, uh, North Korea is testing its missile program. Uh, It's looking to adapt uh, and... Uh, The issue here, though, is that these actions are provocative. Uh, They're dangerous. With tensions rising, U.S. officials have called for Kim to engage in diplomacy rather than saber-rattling. But an administration official confirms they've heard only silence from Kim's regime. The U.S. now pressuring two of North Korea's supporters, Russia and China, without naming them, at an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council. The DPRK has enjoyed blanket protection from two members of this council. These two members have gone out of their way to justify the DPRK's repeated provocations and block every attempt to update the sanctions regime. Since the beginning of this year, North Korea has carried out 24 missile tests so far, including ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and claimed hypersonic tests. But worse may yet be ahead. The U.S. has warned for months now that North Korea is ready to carry out its seventh nuclear test, a step officials and analysts say could come at any time. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has warned North Korea that if they keep this up, what's ahead for them is more condemnation and more isolation. But Jake, looking at this, practically given the record-breaking pace of missile launches here, that does not seem like a warning they are willing to heed. All right, Oren Lieberman of the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss is the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, retired Rear Admiral uh, John Kirby. Uh, Admiral, thanks for joining us. So today's provocation from North Korea, it's six launch in just two weeks, under two weeks. Why? What do you think is behind this sudden escalation? 
difficult to know with certainty exactly what Kim Jong-un is thinking on any given day. We don't have perfect visibility into his decision-making process, but clearly at the very basic level, uh, he is trying to improve his ballistic missile capabilities. He's testing ranges. He's testing capabilities. Clearly, with every one he does, whether it's successful or not, he learns from that, and the program continues to move on. So obviously, this is at the very least an effort to improve his capabilities to threaten his neighbors. The U.S. participated in a ballistic missile defense exercise with Japan and with South Korea today. Uh, I assume that these exercises are at least partly because of a a desire to deter North Korea. It doesn't seem to be working. Um, Is it possible that those exercises are also provoking North Korea? Well, I think if you ask Kim Jong-un, you'd probably say that, the, that, the, that they're having that effect, but that's not the, not the effort at all. You're right. We are trying to make sure we can deter aggressive, provocative actions out of the North. But more importantly than that, actually just as importantly as that, is we want to make sure we have the appropriate military capabilities at the ready in the region in case we need them. And that's what these exercises are really all about. Obviously, yes, we're sending a message that we're going to, that we're going to defend our national security interests and that we continue to discourage uh, more provocative actions out of the North. But but again, at our basic level, we've got to be ready uh, to meet our national security interests there. We have five of seven treaty alliances in the Indo-Pacific, two of them, one with Japan, one with South Korea, that we obviously take very seriously. And so we're working on those military capabilities. You've also seen us, Jake, operate together with the Japanese, with the South Koreans, and working on trilateral cooperation, all three nations trying to improve our defensive capabilities together. I mean, you heard Caitlin Collins reporting that North Korea is not even picking up uh, the phone uh, when the White House uh, reaches out. Is the problem that the U.S. is now in a bad state with both Russia and China? Uh, not that we're the bad guys in that situation at all, but, but is that one of the problems? What, what is the, why is the dynamic so bad right now? It's difficult to connect the the the. the fraught relations that we have with China and Russia with uh, with the absence of diplomacy with Kim Jong-un. We have said, and we've said it publicly many, many times, uh, we are willing to sit down with Kim Jong-un without preconditions to find a diplomatic way forward here to denuclearize his capabilities, to denuclearize uh, the peninsula. And we're serious about that. But because he hasn't, you know, answered any of those entreaties, we've got to make sure we've got the military capabilities ready uh, in case uh, in case it should come to conflict, which, of course, nobody wants to see that happen. Now, with Russia and China, uh, as you heard our U.N. Ambassador uh, Lyndon Thomas Greenfield say at this emergency session, uh, th- these are countries that have influence in Pyongyang and fail to use that influence. These are countries that are looking the other way when it comes to sanctions execution against uh, North Korea. And just by dint of that, uh, just by dint of not being willing to enforce the sanctions that are in place. Uh, they are enabling Kim Jong-un to continue to fund and resource and try to improve his programs. Do you think North Korea is trying to monopolize or take advantage of this moment where the U.S. is trying to handle relations with Russia after invading Ukraine, as well as this uh, situation in the Middle East amid the possible oil crisis and OPEC and Russia uh, agreeing to reduce production? Again, it's difficult to know exactly what his motivations are or what the timing is here. I mean, uh, it's possible uh, that he's looking out and seeing and and thinking uh, falsely that the United States is distracted elsewhere and we're not going to pay attention to this. Uh, But that would be a that would be a mistake on his part, because, as you've seen, 
uh, we're not going to look the other way. We are making sure we've got the capabilities in place, the training, the programs uh, in place uh, to defend ourselves and our interests. Uh, the United States is big enough. Uh, we're, we're powerful enough uh, to be focused on multiple contingencies and multiple uh, uh, multiple threats and challenges around the world. So if that's his motivation, uh, he's making a mistake. All right, Rear Admiral uh, John Kirby, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Coming up, the Oath Keepers sedition trial and testimony revealing a member of the far-right militia group was in touch with the Secret Service before the January 6th Capitol attack. Why? Plus, from devastation to frustration for victims of Hurricane Ian with attempts to get aid turning into an exhausting process. And also, the prosecutor in Fulton County, Georgia, investigating Donald Trump in election interference. New this hour, CNN is learning when charges could drop in that case. Stay with us. A federal judge in the sedition trial of five members of another far right wing militia group, the Oath Keepers, ruled today that the jury will not see a death list allegedly written by one of the defendants. The judge called it, quote, too prejudicial. The extremist group members each face up to 20 years in prison for their roles in the deadly capital insurrection. CNN Sarah Seidner takes a look now at the explosive testimony in court today. Four jurors arrived in the Oath Keeper sedition trial. Judge Amit Mehta ruled on whether they would be able to see this handwritten note, allegedly written by defendant Thomas Caldwell. It has death list scrawled across the top and lists the name of two Georgia election officials, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, who tearfully testified to the January 6th committee about death threats they received after they became the subjects of a fabricated conspiracy about election fraud. There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. The judge ruled jurors should not see the note, saying it wasn't related to the case and would prejudice the jury. Caldwell is one of five defendants and the only one not in jail. He walks into court using a cane every day. His attorney is painting him as a severely disabled veteran who took more prescription opioids than prescribed on January 6th and was not part of any conspiracy to stop the peaceful transfer of power from President Trump to Joe Biden. Every single in there is a traitor. Every single one. Prosecutors paint a very different picture of Caldwell playing these videos in court of him on Capitol grounds on January 6th. Today I wipe my on Pelosi's doorknob. An FBI agent testified that Caldwell was able to walk to the Capitol without a cane and climbed over a low cinder block wall. Prosecutors introduced messages they say Caldwell sent to another Oath Keeper as to his intentions in the alleged conspiracy. They were sent in early December after the January 6th rally was announced. Attached, please find OP plan, which can serve as template for future training action. Caldwell allegedly included a link to purchase a zombie killer hatchet and wrote about getting non-attributable weapons. On January 6th, after the attack on the Capitol had begun, the FBI testified Caldwell sent a group chat message. If we had guns, I guarantee we would have killed 100 politicians, it said. Then, former Oath Keeper John Zimmerman testified. He believed Oath Keeper founder Stuart Rhodes was in touch with a Secret Service agent in the lead-up to the 2020 election. Extremist groups traveling to Washington for rallies after the 2020 election did have numerous contacts with law enforcement agencies. CNN reached out to the Secret Service for comment. Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. In another January 6th case, a top lieutenant to the Proud Boys leader just became the first member of the far-right militia to plead guilty to seditious conspiracy in connection 
with his role in the January 6th insurrections. Investigators say Jeremy Bertino was not at the Capitol on January 6th, but they claim he was involved in extensive meetings and chats with Proud Boys leadership ahead of the riot. Bertino's guilty pleas to seditious conspiracy charges will boost the Justice Department's case against other members of the Proud Boys. And in Georgia, the investigation into the January 2021 Trump phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, during which the president asked Raffensperger to, quote, find enough votes to overturn the election, that could wrap up by the end of the year. CNN has learned that the Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Willis, is preparing to issue indictments in that case by as early as December. CNN Sarah Murray is here with us following the case. Sarah, where does the investigation stand right now? Well, Jake, the district attorney there has made it clear she wants to wrap up her work with the grand jury, her investigative work by the end of the year. We are learning that uh, indictments may come as early as December. Right now, though, she's getting ready to go into this pre-election quiet period. We're told the grand jury has been working up until that point, which will start later this week. They're still issuing subpoenas, just calling for witnesses to show up for their testimony after we get past election day. And we learned in a court filing that they're going to move ahead with some search warrants. Of course, we're not going to learn the details of what those search warrants are seeking or who the targets are. But she's a couple big issues she needs to resolve before her investigation wraps up. You know, she's still trying to get testimony, for instance, from White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. She still wants testimony from South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. And she's still holding out this possibility that she may try to subpoena the former president, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray. Interesting. Coming up, a bridge damaged by Hurricane Ian repaired in a matter of days. But for other parts of Florida, recovery will take a lot longer. I'm going to talk with a top Army Corps engineer about the infrastructure challenges as the state enters its rebuilding phase. Stay with us. Topping our national lead, imagine going more than a week with no electricity, with undrinkable water. Schools are shuttered. In some cases, you don't have a house anymore. Well, that's the reality for tens of thousands of Floridians who remain in the dark literally after Hurricane Ian's wrath. Hard-hit Sanibel Island residents were allowed back for the first time yesterday. One woman surveying the wreckage of her, quote, dream home told us that the destruction is incomprehensible. CNN's Leila Santiago now reports for us on the unimaginable loss and the painstaking wait for help. This is the line for help. Help for people like Mary Fernandez. Pretty awful. We lost uh, mobile home and everything in it. She arrived early, hoping to talk to FEMA in time to make it to a scheduled surgery she's been waiting for two months for. On top of that, in a week, she has to leave the place where she's staying. We just have to wait and see and hope that they can give us something that we can go stay somewhere. We have no home. In line in front of her, Susan. The roof is gone, the shed's gone, the lanai's gone, and my car got flooded. And way behind them, Mary Broomfield. The sad part about it is I have yet to see a government official or anyone that come came into our community. It's a one-stop shop set up by FEMA. Here, you'll find the federal government, state agencies, insurance companies. You'll also find long lines under the hot sun, as well as overwhelming emotions and needs of all kinds, mounting frustrations. My patience is gone. People in my community, they lost everything. FEMA says it will open other disaster recovery centers like this one in Fort Myers. Nearly 2,800 FEMA staff are supporting Ian response efforts across the west coast of Florida where Ian hit. But still, some of these people feel they've been left behind. I don't have to live on Sanibel or Fort Myers to be one of the people that they care about. Because to me, that seems like that's all they care about at this point. 
We went to Mary Broomfield's neighborhood, Harlem Heights, where the loss is on display on every road. Sanibel, Fort Myers Beach, McGregor Boulevard, Marco Island, nothing about Harlem Heights. So we felt, definitely felt left out. There are distribution points run mostly by nonprofits. We're trying to provide and meet the basic needs of the people of my community. As for Mary Fernandez, she never made it to the front of the line. She left when she realized she ran out of time in order to make it to her surgery. Time now critical for those with dire needs a week after Ian left these people devastated, still waiting for help. And Jake, it has been less than 24 hours since Biden was in Florida asking people for a bit of patience when it comes to this response. But you can tell that patience is wearing thin here. I'll give you two updates on the two other women that we spoke to. Mary Broomfield from the Harlem Heights uh, neighborhood is still in there. So she's been in there all day waiting to talk to someone. And then as for Susan, Susan was able to go in. We saw her. She had a, a bag with a new cell phone. She said that one of the insurance companies is going to help her get a car and FEMA is helping her with housing moving forward. Jake. All right, Leila Santiago in Fort Myers, Florida for us. Thank you so much. Let's talk to Lieutenant General Scott Spellman now. He is the commanding general of the Army Corps of Engineers. He's with us in studio. General, thanks so much thanks, for joining Jake. us. We appreciate it. So you just got back from Florida. What is the most pressing short-term need for Floridians right now? Yeah, Jake, first I would just like to say on behalf of the men and women of Army Corps of Engineers, we are our hearts are with the people of Florida and Puerto Rico have been impacted by these major storms. Governor DeSantis has asked us to focus initially on water supply, specifically in Lee County. Uh, the good news there is the water treatment plant and the water sewage plant are serviceable and water has been restored to 95% of the communities there. There's still some work to do out on Pine Island. You can imagine these water, distribu- water distribution lines are underground in many cases still underwater and underneath a lot of debris. So there's much work ahead. How much water per person do you try to you try to get, I remember, I, this is very obscure, but I was just reading an old World War I thing uh, where they were talking about how every individual needed, uh, needed one gallon a day. And that was just for, for cooking and for drinking, not for, not for washing. Well, how much do you... Do you yeah, I, I don't know that specific figure uh, for these communities. We're trying to get the system back to 70 pounds per square inch. That's the standard for pressure in, a, uh, in the homes in this area, and we've, we've, we've achieved that with just a 5% uh, remaining to go for the people uh, that are remaining out on Pine Island. Pine so you, Island. you briefed President Biden on what you saw. What other resources do you think the Biden administration needs to deploy? Yeah, so for us, it's the additional, we've talked about water supply. We have over 600 of our experts in Florida now working on additionally temporary emergency power. So Governor DeSantis asked us to focus on adult living facilities and, uh, and water infrastructure. So think uh, sewage treatment plants, uh, lift stations. So we have a number of those generators already placed with more on the road today. Uh, the governor also stood up what we call our temporary roofing program. We've already received over 11,000 requests. And these are communities from all zip codes, from Sarasota all the way down to Naples. And we'll get those first temporary roofs for the people that need them here this weekend. So as you, as you noted, you're working to restore water in the Gulf Coast following the storm. How long do you think it's going to be until everyone has safe drinking water and as much as they need? That's hard to predict. We've got to get the debris off of, off of Pine Island, right? We've got to get uh, these are slow draining basins in the state of Florida. So we've got to get the we've got to get the, the flooding under control. And then we, I think we can attack the remaining leaks in that uh, Lee County system. Are they still finding victims of this of this storm? Are they still finding bodies? Uh, when I was there yesterday, the uh, search and rescue teams and ambulance crews were still out. OK, two days before Ian made landfall, you approved a plan to reduce erosion and flood risk uh, along the shoreline of right. Miami-Dade County. 
Uh, what impact would this have for future hurricanes? It obviously didn't hit Miami-Dade. Right. No, the, we have a number of studies uh, that will be presented to Congress for this next Water Resource Development Act of 2022. A number of them, coastal projects around the country, that we're attacking these uh, ever-increasing uh, storms, the more powerful storms, and of course sea level rise that we have been working to account for all of our projects for the, the past 12 years. This would help. You're not a political guy. You're, you're Army Corps of Engineer, Commanding General. Um, anytime uh, we talk about climate change and the fact that scientists say that these, these storms are getting more intense, we've had more Cat 4s, more Cat 5s hitting the United States. People accuse us of being uh, political or bringing an agenda to this, but you're, you don't have a political agenda. Are you seeing things getting worse? So I'll stay technical. The, the example I like to use is the Missouri River. We have 125 years on runoff data for the upper Missouri River. And uh, we believe we have a good uh, idea of how that system behaves. And we built six massive dams on the upper Missouri and levees from Omaha, Nebraska to St. Louis to accommodate for those flows. And that system, that infrastructure served the nation well to 2011 when we had that massive flood on the upper basin. And then again, just eight years later on the lower Missouri River where we had record flows out of the Niobrara, the Elkhorn, the St. James River, and it overtopped nearly every levee between Omaha and St. Louis. We know the challenge for the engineers, how do we account for this changing precipitation patterns and sea level rise in our coastal projects and our inland projects? So you are seeing things changing in recent years? That's correct. All right. Uh, Lieutenant uh, General Scott Spalman, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And to help victims of this disaster, please go to CNN.com slash impact. Learn how you can help if you have the ability to do so. Coming up next, that awful tragedy in California. Family kidnapped at gunpoint, then all of them killed the surveillance video, giving detectives clues into what happened and the hint of a second suspect possibly involved. Stay with us. Sad news in our national lead, a tragic end to the search for that kidnapped family in Merced County, California. All four family members, including an eight-month-old baby, were found dead in a rural area late Wednesday. Police say... The family was abducted at gunpoint at their business on Monday. And while a suspect is in custody, police have yet to file charges or discover a motive in the killing. CNN's Nick Watt takes a closer look now at this disturbing case. There is the suspect. He looks up at the camera, takes out a weapon. It's Monday morning, 9.02 a.m. Minutes later, the back door opens. Brothers Jazdeep and Arundeep Singh are ushered out of their trucking business office, zip-tied driven away. Minutes later, the suspect is back. This time, he takes Jasleen Cower and her eight-month-old baby, Aruhi Derry. One victim's ATM card was used the next day. Please help us out, come forward, so my family come home safe. They never did. Their bodies found by a farm worker last night, just hours after that plea. Slaughtered, authorities believe, where they lay. There's no words right now to to describe the anger I feel and the senselessness of this incident. I said it earlier, there's a special place in hell for this guy, and I mean it. Officials think all four were murdered, uncle, two parents, and their tiny baby before they were even reported missing Monday lunchtime. This is a peace-loving family and running a small business in, in, in the Merced area. They have been living in this area for a long time. The suspect, authorities say, is 48-year-old Jesus Manuel Salgado. He attempted suicide before he was taken into custody after a tip from his own family. Allegedly caught on security camera Monday, back in 2005, he was convicted of robbery and attempted false imprisonment, paroled 
in 2015. That investigation clearly showed that he was by himself and he knew the victims. He is now talking to investigators. Right now, he's the only definite suspect. I fully believe uh, that we will uh, uncover and find out that there was more than just him involved. When we are able to release everything, should anger the hell out of you on how things went down. Now, we still don't know a motive that Sheriff said that in cases like this, it's often financial, it's often greed, but nothing confirmed so far. And Jake, as you mentioned, no charges yet either. Worth noting that the suspect has been in the hospital getting treatment after that suicide attempt. Now, here is one just awful little detail. On Monday afternoon, one of the relatives of the people missing called their cell phone, hoping that they would answer. They didn't. That phone was answered by a farmer who had found the cell phone lying on the road. Jake. Just absolutely brutal. Nick Watt, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to another horrible story in Thailand, where an ex-police officer killed 24 children while they were sleeping at a daycare center earlier today. Sinan Selina Wang has the details on the massacre and how the shooter took the lives of his own family after the attack. A daycare center teacher describes the moment a former police officer storms the nursery, pulls a gun from his waist, and aims it at her face. More than 20 children killed during their lunchtime nap. A massacre inside a nursery in a small and peaceful town around 540 kilometers northeast of Bangkok. I didn't expect he would also kill the kids, she says, describing how he repeatedly used a knife to kill the children and a pregnant teacher, who she says died inside the room. By a roadside, the body of a woman allegedly run down by the shooter as he drove away in his car. Officials identifying him as 34-year-old Panya Kamrab, a former police officer who had been fired and was in court earlier Thursday on a drug charge just hours before the shooting. Police said he went to the child care center looking for his two-year-old stepson. Discovering the boy was not there, the man began shooting and stabbing people at the nursery, later driving home to kill his wife and stepson before taking his own life. Ambulances and medical workers rushed to the nursery. Family members of the victims were weeping outside the building. Thailand's Prime Minister Prayut Chan-ocha wrote in a statement, I would like to express my deepest condolences to the families and the injured. I've instructed the National Police Chief to quickly enforce the law and all concerned parties to give help and rehabilitate those who are affected urgently. The Prime Minister has ordered an urgent investigation into what is now the country's deadliest ever massacre carried out by a lone perpetrator. The country left in shock and horror. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. Our thanks to Selena Wang for that report. Coming up next, America's mental health crisis and its effect on teens, how the high cost of treatment is only contributing to the problem. But first, the return of the hit CNN series, Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. Take a look. In our health lead, it's no secret that the pandemic has left a negative impact on people's mental health, especially children and teenagers, but many of them are not able to get the help they need. Thanks to a long waiting list and high costs and a lack of providers covered by insurance. According to a new survey by CNN and the Kaiser Family Foundation, 
More than half of the American people, 55%, think that most children and teenagers are unable to get the mental health services they need. Let's bring in Mary Norris. She's one of more than 2,000 adults surveyed by CNN and the Kaiser Family Foundation about mental health issues in America. She works for a nonprofit. She lives just outside Fresno, California, and she's mother to two adult children and a 12-year-old daughter. Mary, thanks for joining us in the survey. You talked about your 12-year-old daughter and the emotional toll that the pandemic has had on her and her ability to adapt to in-person schooling. Tell us more about that and, and how she's doing. Thank you very much. Uh, first, thank you for having me. Um, yes, it's been a very big difficulty across two counties. Um, she has dealt with the pandemic with two different schools, uh, lost a grand- two grandfathers within a month and a half period to COVID. And now currently, um, we still have yet to find a provider due to the fact that now they either want private pay or the numbers that we're calling are no longer in service or they're no longer providing a service to a child any longer. So it is becoming a very uh, difficult situation because she is highly, highly emotional, finds it very hard to deal with not only the quarantine that we had to deal with just but two years ago, but the effects of that has just really affected a lot of the children around her. Oh, yeah. Being bullied. Um, no. no, no, it's just been, it's been awful for kids. And it sounds like um, what, what your daughter's going through is, is, among the worst, I mean, losing two grandparents. Um, but but let's, let's talk for a second more about trying to find a therapist for your daughter because, because you'd think in an era where telehealth, uh, zooming in uh, to meet and talk with a psychiatrist or a social worker, you'd think that that, that seems to have exploded in a good way, but, but you're still having difficulty, huh? Absolutely. Um, apparently, it's due to the way how the providers are, are getting paid in a timely manner which I can understand. Um, but in the meantime, our kids and our, even our adults, we're all, they're all suffering for it. So, yeah, that, that, and that's a very good point. And it would be nice to have more providers like that who would be willing to use the telehealth, uh, that platform, most definitely. Has there been um, group therapy or, or at school provided at all? And finally, yes. At her last school, there wasn't, which was in the... Uh, Fresno Clovis community area, that unified school district. Now here in Madera Unified, she is getting group therapy, um, although that doesn't go ahead and suffice the personal one-on-one therapy. I think she needs to advance to a more confident level, um, more of the one-on-one caring that needs to occur. Yeah, you know, it's it's just a crime uh, against this generation of kids uh, in so many ways. I mean, as if the school shootings fears aren't enough, uh, a year or two uh, not in the classroom uh, has, has uh, really hurt them as well. I, do you know of a lot of other families going through the same problems? Uh, yes, I do. And as a matter of fact, we just uh, last week had a young child who in her classroom and it happened during her time period, uh, had a fake gun and went ahead and decided to take it out of his backpack and tell the teacher that he was going to shoot him. So uh, there's three police cars there. And uh, bottom line is, I think that, um, unfortunately, the lack of moral compass is really um, evident there with our younger generation. And it's only going to get worse if we don't go ahead and make sure that we are active in addressing it. I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. The adults of the United States are failing the children of the United States. Uh, Mary Norris, thank you so much. God bless 
you and your daughter, uh, and uh, please tell her that we're all rooting for her here at CNN. And and remember, if you or or anyone you know needs to talk to a crisis counselor, please contact the suicide hotline calling or texting 988. That's 988. In our sports lead today, the fallout continues over the investigation that found years' worth of abuse in women's professional soccer. More players are speaking out about how the league failed them, including the star player of the women's national team, Megan Rapino. Those people are in positions that have responsibilities, and they didn't fulfill those responsibilities. They um, didn't protect the players at all um, amidst year after year after year. I feel like it's just like... It's just like impossible to overstate that every single year someone said something about uh, multiple coaches in the league and about multiple different environments. The report, which involved more than 200 interviews, uncovered a a culture of of systemic abuse, allegations of sexual misconduct committed by coaches, and it showed how players' complaints were often just blithely dismissed. The National Women's Soccer League has pledged to look into implementing the report's recommendations. Coming up next, President Biden facing pressure from some fellow Democrats to stand up to Saudi Arabia after failing to get action from the kingdom that could have helped keep gas prices down. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a newly hired police officer for Uvalde schools is fired after CNN uncovers that she's one of the Texas Department of Public Safety officers under investigation for the botched response to last May's horrific school shooting. Body cam video shows her arriving at the school and then waiting outside. Now there are new questions about why she was hired to protect children who survived that shooting. Plus, Republican Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker responding to the newest report that the woman he allegedly paid to have an abortion is also one of four mothers of his four known children. CNN is on the campaign trail in Georgia. And leading this hour, gas supply is about to go down and gas prices are going up and Democrats are pointing fingers at the White House. President Biden calling the decision by the oil-producing OPEC states to cut production a, quote, disappointment. But he defended his meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, saying that that was not just about oil. Though some members of his own party suggest the president perhaps got played. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, the White House is now grappling with a complex and potentially damaging set of geopolitical and economic challenges with no easy answers. Not mad, just disappointed. It is a disappointment and it says that there are problems. President Biden weighing how to respond after the coalition of oil producing nations known as OPEC announced it's slashing production in an effort to boost prices, catching the White House by surprise. There's a lot of alternatives we haven't made up our mind yet. The oil cartel's move could raise gas prices, hurt Democrats in the midterm elections, increase the chances of a global recession, and bolster Russia in its war against Ukraine. It's clear that they are definitely taking the side of Russia here because this decision benefits Mr. Putin. Uh, There's no question about that. OPEC's move undermining the crude diplomacy Biden conducted over the summer when he personally visited Saudi Arabia and fist bumped the crown prince over the objections of human rights groups in an attempt to increase the supply of oil. And I'm doing all I can to increase the supply for the United States of America, which I expect to happen. The Saudis share that urgency. Despite how those production increases were only fleeting, Biden says he has no regrets about the trip. No, the the trip was not essentially for oil. 
Good afternoon, everybody. The administration now contemplating next steps, including tapping into the strategic reserves again, despite saying 48 hours ago that wasn't on the table. We're not considering uh, new releases, releases from the strategic petroleum reserve uh, beyond the 180 million. Even before OPEC's decision, gas prices were already on their way up after a recent 99-day streak of decline. With 32 days to go before the midterm elections, Republicans are putting gas prices and Biden's energy policies at the forefront. He's made us dependent upon Russia, Saudi Arabia, and now Venezuela. He hates American oil-filled workers so much that he'll never turn to us. Members of Biden's own party are calling for a reevaluation of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, with Democratic Senator Chris Murphy tweeting, I thought the whole point of selling arms to Gulf states was that when an international crisis came, the Gulf could choose America over Russia and China. Now, Jake, some lawmakers have called for a reduction in military sales to Saudi Arabia, removing U.S. forces from the area, maybe removing some of those missile defense systems that are there. And as you know, Saudi Arabia is the biggest customer of U.S.-made military equipment. But when Brian Deese, who is President Biden's director of the National Economic Council here at the White House, was asked about these propositions from lawmakers earlier, he said he had no announcements at this time, but they would be assessing the situation and consulting closely with Congress, Jake. All right. Our chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, at the White House. Thanks so much. Let's discuss this with Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California. Uh, let's take a quick trip down memory lane, if you'll allow me, Congressman. We all remember when President Biden went to Saudi Arabia, despite the kingdom's rampant human rights, rights abuses, and he even fist-bumped Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, despite MBS's responsibility for the very grisly death, murder, of a Washington Post journalist. We were told the president needed to take that trip to represent and protect American interests. We don't see MBS returning the favor today. Do you think President Biden got played? I was opposed to him taking the trip then, and the trip was clearly uh, a mistake. Look, I'm not just disappointed. Like many Americans, I'm outraged, Jake. We have done so much for Saudi Arabia. We defended them when Saddam Hussein was going to invade in the 1990s, when I was still in high school. We supply them with over 70% of the arms that they import. We basically make their air force functional. And for them not to ease when we have an energy crisis, for them to play the United States, while they are making over nearly $100 billion, they have a 73% margin on this, it is outrageous, it is ungrateful, and there need to be consequences. So earlier this week, before OPEC uh, Plus uh, slashed its oil production, you told CNN if they did this, it would be, quote, beyond the pale. You said the Saudis would need to be, quote, dealt with harshly. Here's the president yesterday. Take a listen. What's your reaction to the OPEC question? Disappointment. And uh, we're looking at what alternatives we may have. There's a lot of alternatives we haven't made up our mind yet. So it doesn't sound like you think the president is dealing harshly enough with the Saudis, uh, or as he might have put it while running for office, making the kingdom into a pariah. What do you want President Biden to do? No, he's not. And there are two issues. One is that they're profiting off the American people while making record profits. And the other thing is that they murdered Khashoggi and still are conducting uh, one of the most brutal wars in Yemen, that uh, the truce is no longer there. I would like President Biden to announce concrete steps. First, he could suspend the Patriot sale, $3 billion. He could suspend the air parts that we supply the Saudis. That would ground the Saudi Air Force 
in days. And they can't just go to Russia and China because that would take years. And if he takes those steps, I guarantee you the Saudis would blink. Uh, the Saudis also know that other OPEC folks are going to supply oil. So we have far more leverage over them than they have on us. And we need to be far more bold in the actions we take. You heard uh, Caitlin Collins uh, mention uh, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy's tweet, which said in part, quote, I thought the whole point of selling arms to the Gulf states, despite their human rights abuses, nonsensical Yemen war, working against U.S. interests in Libya, Sudan, etc., was that when an international crisis came, the Gulf could choose America over Russia and and China. Uh, You obviously have uh, called on the administration to halt these weapons sales. Um, but the Biden administration has not said that it's something that they're considering. Why aren't they even considering it, do you think? I don't know. I uh, agree completely with Senator Murphy. I mean, I, if the concern is that the Saudis would further cut production, they can't cut much further than the two million barrels they're already cutting. So there really is no downside for us to be more decisive. And at some point, we have to make it clear to the Saudis, they can't keep taking advantage of us. I mean, 73% is their margin. Look, I understand why Russia wanted the cuts. Russia doesn't have a margin because they have $35 discount on the barrel of oil that they're selling. The Saudis are either doing Putin a favor or or they just want to make more money uh, at the expense of the American public. We need to be far more decisive. Why do you think the White House isn't leading on this the way that you and Senator Murphy want them to be? Well, look, I think the people uh, in the NSC who uh, gave the advice to the president to go to Saudi Arabia, they need to explain what they were thinking. There are some people in the NSC, not Jake Sullivan, certainly not Secretary Blinken, who my understanding was opposed to that trip, but there are certain folks uh, who have a Saudi bias uh, and who have been taking the Saudi side even uh, in the Yemen war. They need to get come uh, and give an explanation to the American public why that trip was planned. Uh, why we're not taking more decisive action. The White House is considering releasing more oil from the nation's strategic uh, reserves, which would help a little in terms of easing some looming pain at the gas pump, though not really all that much. Um, That's not really what the stockpile's for, of course. And we should note the reserves are at their lowest levels since the mid-80s. Well, look, I support that, but they're considering 10 million barrels, and the Saudis are cutting 2 million barrels a day. So... That's not going to make up for for the gap. Now, the Republicans, I think, are wrong when they're saying that somehow the production isn't up. I mean, we're producing almost 12 uh, million barrels a day. Uh, That is not quite at 2019 levels, but it's higher than 2020 or 2021. So the idea is that we are producing, but what is wrecking havoc is the OPEC and the Saudi decision, and we need to stand up to them. Well, we're producing, oil companies are producing, but that doesn't mean they're selling the oil to the United States. They're selling it to whoever pays them the most, right? Well, and that's why I think we should consider it an export ban on the gasoline other than for natural gas to European allies, which I understand now that the president is considering. One other quick point, Jake. You know, the American Petroleum Institute is actually opposed to the NOPEC, to having antitrust action against the Saudis, because they are arguing they fear that if the Saudis increase their output, this is their own words, that it would hurt uh, domestic uh, oil producers because the price would go down. So, uh, you know, the American Petroleum Institute isn't playing this straight either. Democratic Congressman Rokan of California, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. We have a lot more news to get to. A newly Thank hired you. Uvalde School District police officer has been fired just hours after a CNN report 
undercover that she was one of the first Department of Public Safety officers at the scene of last May's school massacre, but she did not go inside. Then, President Biden announcing a major change that could erase the criminal convictions for thousands of Americans. Plus, the NFL due out any moment with new rules about concussions after three players in two weekends suffered serious head injuries. Stick around. CNN has learned that an officer who responded to the school shooting in Uvalde has been fired from her new job. This comes after an exclusive CNN investigation revealed that the officer was not only under investigation for her inaction that day at Uvalde, she had been hired as a school cop at a different nearby elementary school after the Uvalde disaster. The fact that she'd been hired to protect some of the very same kids who had survived the massacre earlier this year outraged parents of many Uvalde victims. CNN Shimon Prokopis has been on this story for months now uh, doing great reporting. Shimon, tell us more about this officer. Right. So she was one of the first officers on scene on the day of the shooting. You see her there actually, Jake, in that video we just played. She's standing there in the DPS uniform. There she is. And you can see she's not wearing a tactical vest. She's outside. She doesn't have a long rifle, which is required, which is protocol uh, by the DPS in active shooter situations. And so as a result of that, when they reviewed her body camera video, when they reviewed other information, the the Texas Department of, of Public Safety decided that she needed further investigation and they referred her to the inspector general. Uh, And after that, there comes a time where she decides that she's going to resign uh, from the agency, from the DPS, and she takes a job with the Uvalde School District as a police officer, Jake, as you mentioned, at a school where victims of the Robb Elementary are attending, where parents are victims, are dropping off their other kids at the school. And it was actually a parent who noticed her at the school and told us about it. We went to the school last week, Jake, to try and talk to Officer Elizondo. She refused to talk to us. Here's some of that exchange. I actually have some questions for you now. Officer Elizondo, I'm doing a story about you and your time at DPS. I'd like to ask you some questions, if possible. Sir, do uh, do you know this officer who you have recently hired? Are you aware that she's under investigation for her actions on the day of the shooting? Do you think she's fit to serve here? Considering that her actions that day are under investigation? Mr. Miller, you don't want to respond to that? And Jake, that gentleman there is is Mr. Miller. He's one of the administrators at the school. For a week, I've been trying to ask the school questions about this officer. What they did in order to investigate her, a background check, uh, to see if she was fit to serve at this school. And what we've also uncovered is that the school was aware. The school police department was aware that she was under investigation because after the DPS referred her to this inspector general's uh, investigation, she decided to leave the school. And so she was going to have to undergo a background check. And during that time, the school police reached out to the DPS to ask for any information about her. And the DPS notified the school at the end of the July that she was under this investigation. But despite that, it seems that the school still hired her, and really all this information only come into light because parents brought some of this to us and, of course, Jake, some of our sources and other information that we were able to gather. And then finally today, the school announcing that they were going to fire her. It's so remarkable. This story has so many government officials, local officials, paid by taxpayers 
who just refuse the right. concept of accountability or transparency. They just refuse to answer any questions. They've been lying from the beginning. And these parents have been through unspeakable tragedies and an unforgivable aftermath. Elizondo's hiring must have been such a devastating blow. It really was, Jake. You know, before we aired our story last night, I thought it was, imper- you know, is important to reach out to the families so that they weren't surprised by this. And their reaction to me on the phone was just, they were just, they were so upset because it's for them, it was sort of how much more are we supposed to take? How many more lies? How many more secrets? Where's the transparency? Where's the accountability? And today they're getting some of that. And so they're feeling some, you know, small relief because they've been asking these questions about these officers at the school. And so today, at least they get some relief. But as you said, Jake, there's still a lot more we don't know. And we're still digging in and we're still trying to uncover a lot of really what happened that day, Jake. Shimon, as always, doing great work. Shimon Brokopest, thank you. Thousands of Americans are about to be pardoned for their marijuana possession convictions. President Biden just announced he might try to change how marijuana, how cannabis is classified. Criminal justice reform advocate Van Jones will join us live next. Our politics lead now in a bold step towards possibly making marijuana legal at the federal level. President Biden today announced a sweeping pardon for all federal offenses of simple marijuana possession. Biden also wants to initiate the process of potentially loosening federal classification of the drug. Right now, uh, marijuana, cannabis, is classified as a Schedule I drug that limits research on it and, and puts marijuana in the same level as LSD or meth. Let's bring in CNN's Van Jones, who's an advocate for prison reform and ending the war on drugs. Um, so Van, what do you think? Why would President Biden decide to do this now? Do you, I, to be cynical or, or skeptical, do you think it's about getting young people out to vote? Hey, listen, maybe, maybe so, but I'll tell you, a long time coming and it's a good thing. Uh, 6,500 people right now have, have these charges on their record. A simple possession charge means you were smoking a joint uh, on, on the, the Washington uh, Mall or a national park. These are not big drug dealers, but it's on their record forever because the federal charge never goes away. So Biden just cured that problem for a bunch of people. More importantly, he's saying uh, going forward, we've got to reschedule this thing. Listen, people have been fighting for this for a long time. He promised to do it. Kamala Harris said she was going to do it in 2021. Cory Booker's been fighting for this. But people on the right have also been pushing for this. Uh, Representative Nancy Mace, uh, Tom McClintock, American for Prosperity, people on the left like the Justice Roundtable, uh, Weldon Angelos. In other words, both sides agree. It makes no sense to be clogging up the federal courts, to clog, uh, 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 clogging up any court system with these little ticky-tacky nonsense marijuana offenses. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very, very good thing he did. So I want to read this tweet from Republican Senator Tom Cotton, uh, who is a, a critic of uh, criminal justice reform measures. It says, quote, in the midst of a crime wave and on the brink of a recession, Joe Biden is giving blanket pardons to drug offenders, many of whom pled down from more serious charges. This is a desperate attempt to distract from failed leadership, unquote. Uh, He is on the Senate Judiciary Committee. What's your response? Uh, He never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity to be happy about something good happening for people. Uh, He is just terrible on these issues, but he is by himself. He's in a a microscopic minority in this country. You ask most Republicans, uh, should you be clogging up the courts with people with simple marijuana charges? The answer is no. And by the way, uh, you do have an opportunity now uh, for, the, for the whole country to look at this thing. You've got 19 states right now that have already done some level of decriminalization, plus the, the District of Columbia. There is no more crime or anything bad happening in those states than any other states, but what you do have is fewer people going to jail for dumb reasons. 
And so I think, you know, is Biden delivering on some promises that he made? Uh, maybe that excites some young people. I hope that it does. But I also hope this is a first step toward governors and other people looking at this. Uh, you know, you have people who have a lifetime of pain. They can't get jobs. They can't get rent. They can't get student loans. So they got a federal ju- uh, drug charge for something as simple as just having marijuana with them, uh, uh, you know, at, at a national park. That's got to stop. And we got to go beyond that. But I think I think Biden should be applauded. It can't stop here. But governors should follow his leadership and let's get this thing off of Schedule 1. To treat marijuana at the same level as heroin or meth or LSD is ridiculous and everybody knows it. According to an ACLU study conducted between 2010 and 2018, black people are still far more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people in every state, including those states that have legalized marijuana. So what do you think this step might mean for the future of incarceration in America? Well, I think it's a big deal because if, you, if you, this thing moves forward, if they can schedule it differently, so we start to stop treating it like it's this hor- hor- hard and horrible drug, if governors follow suit, what that means is there's less of a reason to arrest African-Americans for nonsense charges. What happens is if you're African-American, you're going to have more contact with the police anyway because police over-police black communities. So you wind up getting picked up on these charges. A white kid might be smoking the same joint a few neighborhoods over, but the cops aren't in that neighborhood, so they don't wind up getting arrested in the first place. They don't have the contact in the first place. So reducing the, 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 the number of charges that can come against an African-American kid in the neighborhood is overall really good. Uh, but listen, it's not just African-Americans who think this is ridiculous. You have people on both sides of the aisle that for years have been saying, we can't keep wasting resources ruining people over something that most people in this country now accept is, uh, look, I don't want my kids doing it. I don't do it. But if they do do it, I don't think I should be in jail or have a criminal charge. And I don't think your kids should either. I think most people agree with that now. And Biden is, is delivering on something that I think most Americans understand. All right, Van Jones, good to see you again. Thanks so much. A lot of Republicans have Georgia on their mind and some have advice for Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker on how to handle the newest allegations about his past. Stay with us. In our politics lead, another bombshell rocking Republican plans to retake the Senate. Herschel Walker issuing a fresh denial after the Daily Beast reported more new details about the woman who claims the former football star paid for her to get an abortion. The Georgia Republican has been a vocal abortion opponent on the campaign trail. He says he supports a ban on the procedure with no exceptions for any reason. After Walker denied paying for the woman's abortion, the Daily Beast says she revealed to them that she and Walker have a child together. CNN has not independently verified the Daily Beast story. CNN's Diane Gallagher joins us now live. And Diane, tell us more about this latest allegation and Walker's reaction to it. Yeah, so Jake, initially to that first original report by the Daily Beast, Walker said he had no idea who the woman could be. He didn't just deny it. And of course, when the Daily Beast followed up on Wednesday with their separate report, she said that seemed very an unlikely defense to her because she claims that she is one of the mothers of one of Herschel Walker's sons. Now, he had his very first open press event today here in Wadley, Georgia. Since those allegations have come out, he spoke to predominantly employees at a lumberyard. And after going through his stump speech where he mostly talked about his football career and some of his business career, some of his faith a little bit, and then a story of redemption, he took some questions from reporters. And look, I asked him, have you reached out to any of your four children's mothers? And this is what he said. 
Have you reached out to any of the mothers of your children? No. To ask what? Why not? Uh, why do I need to? Well, because according to the article, one the woman who says that you paid for her to have an abortion is also the mother of one of your children. It seems like that's that's an easy way to... Because of the article, I had more kids. That's why I didn't reach out to anyone because I said no, and that's what I mean. When I said no, I, I said it's not correct. That's a lie. This here, the abortion thing is false. It's a lie. And that's what I said. I said anything happened with my ex-wife or what Christian was talking about, I don't know. Now look, talking about Christian there, that is his son who, after that initial Daily Beast report, uh, went online, made several social media posts about his father, allegations about his childhood, about his father misrepresenting himself and saying, Jake, that the family did not want Herschel Walker to run. Uh, Herschel Walker, when asked about that today, simply would say that he loved his son. That's the same thing that he has said uh, every time when asked about it since. Diane, you're talking to voters down there in Georgia. Uh, are they bothered by this story? Yeah. You know, Jake, it was really interesting because uh, talking to voters who were at this event for Herschel Walker, all of them sort of talked about this theme that we've seen him uh, sort of hang his hat on in the past couple days of redemption. I had several people repeat almost word for word the same line for me, which is, I care more about Georgia's future than I care about Herschel Walker's past. Now, I asked many of them, if you find out uh, Herschel Walker is lying about this, will that bother you? And several people said, you know, I might be upset by it but I'd probably still vote for him. It was the allegations from his son, Christian, that actually seemed to upset people more, uh, talking about uh, potential child abuse talk uh, when he was younger, those claims, things like that, uh, talking about the family not wanting him to run. It was that type of allegation that seemed to upset people more. But again, Jake, no one that I spoke with said that they had any plan to not vote for him because of this. I asked if there was anything. One woman, is there anything he could do that would stop you from voting for Herschel Walker? And she said, probably not. I'd have to think about it, but I can't think of anything. Right. Of course, those are attendees of a rally for Herschel Walker, but still very interesting. Diane Gallagher, thanks so much. Let's discuss. And Jackie, let me start with you. Uh, Your Daily Beast colleague, Roger Sullenberger, uh, is the reporter who broke the story and is speaking to the woman at the center uh, of this uh, controversy. This is what uh, she told him uh, about why she's speaking out, quote, He didn't accept responsibility for the kid we did have together, and now he isn't accepting responsibility for the one that we didn't have. That says so much about how he views the role of women in childbirth versus his own, and now he wants to take that choice away from other women and couples entirely. Do you think this is going to have any effect on the race? Well, I mean, this is a story about hypocrisy. And so whether or not it does, I mean, we'll have to wait and see, but it is important, no matter if it has an effect on the race or not, that this is that that this be made public because his actions and his public uh, persona are not matching up. He's trying to have it both ways. He's been saved, but he lied, but, but he di- didn't do anything wrong. It just it, it really um, his his denials don't make a lot of sense. Now, what I'm curious about is how this affects the Republican race nationally, because if they were trying to leave the abortion issue behind and talk about the economy and talk about potentially gas prices going up, this is front and center again, right at debate season. You know, it's interesting. You remember uh, Congressman Murphy, I think Tim Murphy Mm -hmm. from the the Pittsburgh area. He was also a quote unquote pro-life Republican. Uh, And then it came out. He was trying to get his, I guess, girlfriend or mistress, whatever, to get an abortion. And he resigned immediately. 
He, I mean, but this is where we are now. Now, I don't know if it's because it's one member of Congress versus a Senate seat in a very competitive ter- term, but, but does it matter anymore to Republican voters if pro-life candidates are actually only pro-life when it comes to everybody else, but when it's their own life, you know, they're happy to have people get abortions? Sure. Times have changed. And Tim Murphy had a lot of other things going on, too. And we've actually seen some Republicans who have survived things like this. And Herschel Walker may survive this. But to Jackie's point, it's about hypocrisy, but it also does bring this abortion issue back to the front. Republicans, it's not surprising that Republicans are not abandoning him. It's also not really important. It's these swing voters who are going to make the difference. And if this issue, if this election ends up being more about abortion than it is about the economy, then that's bad news for Republicans. This is, it's not a surprise to anyone that Herschel Walker is a flawed candidate. But let's remember, he was losing before this, and the people he needs to make up votes with live in that suburban Atlanta area, and this is not going to help him with, with those people. And, and Doug, take a listen to Lieutenant Governor, of, uh, former, or I guess he is still current, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. He's speaking out, uh, and he made some interesting comments about this. Even the most staunch Republicans, I think, are rattled at the continued flow of information. The weight of that baggage is starting to, to feel a little closer to unbearable at this point. Herschel Walker uh, won the primary because he scored a bunch of touchdowns back in the 80s, and he was Donald Trump's friend. And now we've moved forward several months on the calendar, and that's no longer a recipe to win. Do you think that this will turn off enough voters that Senator Raphael Warnock could win? I think so. Look, Herschel Walker is unfit to be in the Senate, and we've known this for a long time. Republicans have known this for a long time. McConnell's known it for a long time. He should have been disqualified when the story about him putting a gun to his wife's head uh, came out, right? But what this is doing is just adding to this question about, you know, his, his honesty. He's, a, you know, he's lied about his academic record, his business record, his, his relationships with law enforcement. This sort of compounds this into a larger argument about him being a fraud, which I think Democrats want to prosecute against him. Um, and yeah, look, I agree. I think for voters in suburban district, uh, suburban areas around Atlanta, this is going to be a real problem. But he, I mean, he honestly really shouldn't be running in the first place. I mean, he is, he pulled a gun on his wife. Right. Although, to be fair, uh, that, you know, the Warnock campaign is using that uh, in an ad against him. And to be fair, that video comes from an interview that Herschel Walker did with that wife, a joint interview in which he was talking about mental illness and trying to come clean. I'm certainly not defending it, yeah. uh, but the context is not just the, that his ex-wife, you know, went on TV and sure. talked about it. It was it was a and try it was an attempt to, to have an open discussion about mental health. So a few things, Jake. First of all, national Democrats, they haven't wanted to come near this. Warnock's campaign has also not really wanted to lean in into this particular issue also. And what I'm hearing from Democrats is they don't think that they need to. This is already playing out in the media and being talked about by both Herschel Walker's son and all of us at this roundtable. And so they don't think that they really need to go there. And certainly there could be this debate that we expect next week in which it could come up. What I'm hearing from Republicans, though, is that they're continuing to stand by him. The NRSC isn't planning to pull money out and both Republicans and Democrats are telling me, Jake, that if you were already not voting for Herschel Walker, you probably, if you already weren't, that this isn't going to make you want to vote for him. And if you were voting for him, those views are probably ingrained at this point and voters probably won't back off. Although, Jackie, uh, this was interesting. Political reporter Natalie Allison, who covers Senate campaigns, she made this observation on Twitter. The latest Herschel Walker uh, abortion scandal is on CNN. And yes, all the D.C. folks are aware, as you were just noting, but 11 Alive in Atlanta tonight led with crime. Don't assume voters in Georgia are aware or actively thinking about this. And there is sometimes a big disconnect between what we in the national media seize upon 
and what local TV or media uh, sees upon, like uh, a crime wave in downtown Atlanta, for example. Well, and again, that when you are, you're seeing in several of these Senate campaigns, the Democrats really are um, bowing under the attacks over crime. And if that is, that's another issue that if, Republic, if, if um, more voters are talking about that going into the ballot box, that's going to be problematic. However, um, to, to uh, Brennan and Doug's point, the suburban Atlanta voters that are watching this kind of rollout, if they are watching it, that, that's where it's going to be a problem. Um, this, no, this isn't going to discourage any Republicans from going out and voting um, like perhaps they didn't in 2020. But those other voters um, who are you know, still on the fence, because they do exist, this is going to be a margin race, um, that this issue continuing to unfold this is a problem. Yeah, this is not going to just slide by. I, I'm from Georgia. People in Georgia are talking about this. And let's remember, Georgia has not been good to Donald Trump. He, yeah, he lost. Exactly. He lost to because of him. We lost the two Senate seats. He ran. He tried to take down Brian Kemp, the governor, and, and lost. He's relied. Herschel Walker's relying. Tried to take down Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary and, of State, yeah, and lost. And, and lost. Yeah. Donald or, uh, Herschel Walker is relying on the Donald, power of Donald Trump voters to get him over the over the edge or uh, over the finish line. And Brian Kemp, the very popular governor, wants nothing to do with him. Brian Kemp is probably going to win somewhat easily, um, and he's completely throwing him no lifeline and saying, I'm going to run my own race. Herschel's on his own. And for these Republicans, the thing is, is like, what's what else is out there? Right. Like this is the worst position to be in in a campaign when you have a candidate you don't trust is telling the truth. He hasn't been forthright with anything. And you're just worried about what is next. And Jackie may know, but like, no, 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 <laughs> but it's just like, what is next? You is know, there another and, one next? and it's just dripping out. I got nothing, drip, drip, drip. This thing is going on but for going back to what you were days. saying about the, the broader control of the U.S. Senate. You know, I had one Republican in Georgia telling me that this isn't even about the individual at this point. This is about voting for a Republican and it's about getting back control of the Senate. So that's a general sentiment that my colleagues and I are hearing here is that they just want that Republicans want to get back control of the Senate. So that's part of the reason. Not yeah, and I don't just doubt about Republicans. Again, yeah. this is, I don't this doubt is that any voter in Georgia that, that thinks it's important to get back the Senate for Republicans is going to vote for Herschel Walker. But there are a lot of people that don't think like that. <laughs> right. And they, they might just be like, I don't like either one of these guys. And there might just be no votes uh, for that race. Anyway, thanks one and all uh, for being here. Fireworks inside a Wisconsin courtroom today as the suspect in that horrible, deadly Christmas parade attack represents himself. And our world lead cracking down on Iran or on the Iranians. The U- U.S. is now issuing uh, additional sanctions against Iranian officials because of the government's attempt to block Internet access and for responding with extreme violence against Iranian protesters. Let's bring in CNN's Jamana Karacha. And Jamana, what do these sanctions from the U.S. call for? Well, as expected, Jake, these uh, sanctions announced today by the United States uh, uh, are targeting seven senior Iranian officials for their role in the crackdown on these peaceful protests, whether it is the violence that has been unleashed against the protesters or the Internet shutdown. Among them is the Minister of Interior, uh, Ahmed Vahidi, who, according to the United States, is the man in charge of all of the country's uh, security forces. And they say that these security forces have not 
not only just played a big part in this current crackdown, but for years, these forces have been a tool of the government used to uh, repress its own uh, people. They say their actions have led to the death of thousands of people, including dozens of uh, people in these ongoing protests right now. And another individual is the Minister of Communication, who they accuse of basically shutting down the Internet, stopping the access of millions of Iranians uh, to the Internet in the hope of slowing down the protests, Jake. The Human Rights Watch uh, organization released a new report condemning the violence. Tell us more about the HRW report. Well, Jake, uh, to sum it up, Human Rights Watch is accusing the Iranian security forces of utter disregard for human life. Uh, And we've heard this from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. They've been working really hard over the past nearly three weeks to try and document uh, these abuses that have been taking place, the killings of the protesters. And they accuse the security forces of using excessive, uh, unnecessary, lethal force against the protesters. Uh, They've spoken to uh, eyewitnesses to families of victims. They've collected testimony as well as going through all the video and photos that we've been getting. And they say that the security forces have basically been shooting directly and deliberately using live ammunition as well as metal pellets at the protesters, Jake. All right, Jamana Karaja, thank you so much. To our national lead now in the trial in Wisconsin for a man accused of driving through a Christmas parade in Waukesha last year, killing six people. Last month, the suspect, Daryl Brooks, withdrew his plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. And the judge is now allowing him to defend himself at trial. But before proceedings even began today, Brooks had to be removed from the courtroom for multiple outbursts. He even partially disrobed in court. CNN's Lucy Kafanov is following all of this. And Lucy, this is not the first time he has interrupted his own trial. No, absolutely not, Jake. And watching the proceedings over the past few days has been an excruciating process for everyone involved, not the least of which the judge, who's remained notably composed despite having been interrupted uh, by Darrell Brooks probably hundreds of times. And this was before opening statements even began. Now, he has been talking over the judge, repeatedly asking irrelevant questions, refusing to follow directions. Take a look. You have got to stop. It's, it's fine if you object. I will rule on it as I deem appropriate under the rules of evidence, which, by the way, I provided a copy for you. See that big book over there? No, it has the criminal statutes. I don't see. It has the traffic code. It I has the rules see. of evidence. Well, it's on your table. It's I'm directing that, the bailiffs to remove them to the have. other courtroom. Every day that we have been in court since Monday, um, he has shown a complete and utter disrespect for these simple rules of civility. Now, this morning's antics erupted as the judge tried to address why Brooks had chosen to wear jail clothing instead of the suit that he had access to. And after numerous interruptions, he was again removed to a neighboring courtroom. When he appeared on video minutes later, as you just saw, he was half naked. Now, the judge also explained that he had also removed a shoe and threatened to throw it. She accused him of making a mockery of the judicial process. And this is what we've seen throughout the week, Jake. The Waukesha district attorney accused Brooks of delay tactics, pointing to previously recorded phone calls between him and his mom, in which he said he intended to delay the trial for several weeks. The DA maintained that he is intelligent, coherent, and is, quote, 100 percent competent to stand trial. The judge concurred. Opening statements just got under the way in the last hour, but they were again interrupted. And if this week is any indication, Jake, this is going to be a lengthy trial. Brooks is facing life in prison if convicted of intentional homicide. Jake. All right, Lucy Kavanaugh, thank you so much. Coming up, the series of recent concussion injuries involving players 
pushing the NFL to make changes. Stay with us. Our sports lead, possible new protocols coming for the NFL and how the league handles players and concussions after three players suffered serious head injuries over the past two weeks. Let's bring in CNN's Coy Wire. Coy, the Thursday night game is only hours away. Do you think these changes will come before then? Jake, I don't see how they could come before then because you would think that these changes would have to then be uh, moved on to the officials who are at this game monitoring for concussions. So we do know that they do need to change, right? The Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy called the system broken uh, in regards to the protocol. I spoke to a high-ranking NFL official, Jake, who said that he believes there needs to be a hard reset in regards to the protocol, that some of the spotters, there are two spotters in the booth looking for symptoms of concussion. He thinks that they and also the unofficial affiliate neurotrauma consultants on the field have become a bit, quote, lackadaisical in regards to following concussion protocols. And when you see Tuatunga Vailoa on the ground and you see him stumbling off the field and then find him back in the game, it's clear that something is not right. You would expect that gross motor instability will be a term that both the league and the Players Association said they were going to look at, whereas before it was a decision, are they okay enough to go back on the field despite showing some signs of uh, and symptoms? Now you would think, Jake, after these changes have been made, there will be no sort of, uh, no doubt, no hesitation. When those signs and symptoms are seen, those players will come out of the game. And you, you played in the league. These changes, they've been a long time coming. Uh, yes, long time coming, Jake. Uh, you know, the, the, it, I had a time, you know, when I played in my rookie year, Jake, I, I hit a player and I played in t- another entire series and did not even remember those plays until I saw it on film the next day. Okay, so we know that the concussions happen, but we don't know uh, how, how involved um, these play- teams can actually get. I mean, they've, they've changed the equipment. They've changed the rules to, to make uh, – and they changed the, the amount of times that players have padded practices during the week to try to decrease the number of, of impacts that players are receiving – but it comes down, the most important thing, Jake, is we need to protect the players from themselves because, like, I did not even know that I was out on my feet and I was still playing in a game. And we see Tua Tungavaloa saying that it was his back that was bothering him and causing him to stumble, and he still maintains that's the case. Um, we cannot allow players to put themselves in harm way. Hopefully these new protocols will address that specifically. All right, Corwire, thanks so much. Good to see you again. You can follow me. On Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper, you can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcast. Just sitting there like a, like a juicy tomato. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.